Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Thank you, my friends, for joining us on this second installment of our study in Paradise Lost. Now, I know, again, this is not what people typically do, but I am genuinely going to try to continue to make the case that this is worth your time, right? And I understand. i got to make that case. That's not obvious. That's not what people think anymore. So I'm not going to apply, like, look, I'm a preacher, and so at every moment I want to pause and, like, apply this to your life, right? Uh, I'm not going to do that, though. I may, I might suggest a few things because <laughs> I can't help it. But I'm going to try to open this up. Uh, what I'm trying to do is open up an archaic ancient poem that otherwise people think of as impenetrable or elitist or something for somebody who wasn't them. And I want this to be able to resonate with any regular human being who just is a normal human being working a normal job and be able to see why these ideas are profound for you. Um, So I'll do some of that work suggestively, but I just, I'm hoping people will be able to, I just want to provide a little bit of a bridge to make this stuff a little more accessible than people think it is. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm trying, I'm going to try not to preach, but I am going to try to, uh, to describe the poem and describe aspects of the poem. And, and what I want to focus on for this segment is Satan. Now, Satan, what a provocative topic, right? But even more provocatively, Satan is the first subject that Milton takes up in Paradise Lost. Now, there's a lot of questions as to why that is, but I think the most obvious idea behind that is this. We have more in common with Satan than with God a lot of times. Satan is fallen. We are fallen. Satan is corrupted by pride and desire for power to gain things that aren't his. We struggle with those things uh, day in, day out. I think in part, Milton is nodding to the fact that we may be more a part of the devil's party than we realize most of the time, that our perspective, indeed, our perspective that God is unfair sometimes, that God is, is kind of austere or kind of not there for me when I needed him. I think a lot of that language, which is ultimately Satan's kind of mentality, is also the mentality we struggle against. Paul says as much, right? And the spirit is, uh, is warring against this sinful nature that we have that keeps seeing God wrongly and keeps living wrongly because we see God wrongly. So I think Milton is just saying, let's start where we're most comfortable. And that, unfortunately, in his perspective, I think, is hell. And so what he does is, now there's also a good reason just plot-wise, uh, this is the fall of the rebel angels. So this is implied in scripture um, that it happens before the creation of the heavens and the earth, right? Because if you know the Genesis account, there's there's a Satan, there's a serpent in the garden who's able to deceive Adam and Eve, and we do not get the origin of that serpent in the Genesis passages. He's already a part of the created reality. So in part, it's also just a plot point, right? That before the heavens and earth were created, or before at least humankind was created, Satan and the rebel angels fell. Uh, Jesus says later, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. 
this is also just beginning before the beginning, which is the beginning of the creaturely fall of the rebel angels. So what Milton does is unbelievable. And what you have to realize if you ever do read this poem with your own eyeballs is that his most, some of his most beautiful language occurs in hell and in Satan's mouth and in Satan's mind. And part of the reason for that is that Milton understands Satan to be a sensualist, an esthete, someone who is is really drawn by beauty, right? Lucifer, uh, dawn of the morning, right? The, the angel who led the host of heaven in great worship. Worship is art, worship is beauty, right? All of this imagery of maybe the prior station Lucifer had before the fall is also part of his corruption, that he was allured, that he was drawn to the appeal of the sensual, to the appeal of the beautiful, that he in fact replaces God with his own sense of his own beauty. So Milton's very intentional when he makes Satan oftentimes have some of the most beautiful lines in the whole poem. So to begin in hell is not to begin just in some sort of, I don't know, some alt-core metal sort of, you know, dark kind of, it's, it's a dark, dark beauty right? He describes the host of Satan and his rebel angels sort of lying there on the blasted surf of sort of what he calls chaos, this sort of broiling, sort of burning sulfur kind of in the kind of environment or landscape. And he, and he describes them this way. He says, him the almighty power hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky, with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire, who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. Nine times the space that measures day and night to mortal men, he with his horrid crew lay vanquished, rolling in the fiery gulf, confounded though immortal. But his doom reserved him to more wrath, for now the thought, both of lost happiness and lasting pain, torments him. Round he throws his baleful eyes that witnessed huge affliction and dismay, mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate. So you get this incredible, and it's very physicalized, adamantine chains, right? Um, you get this incredible image of Satan and this host. I'm talking hundreds to thousands of angels, right, who have fallen, these hulking masses lying on this fiery gulf, stunned, disoriented, confused, and Satan is the first to sort of collect himself and emerge, sort of stand up. It says, round he throws his baleful eyes, right? He's, he's experiencing the pain of having been cast out of communion or presence with God, right, after the war in heaven. And he is looking around at this fallen host of his, his sort of, his warriors, his battle, his battalion, right? And he's looking around and he's trying to understand where they are because he dwelt previously in the heavenly realms, realms described later in the poem as realms of ethereal light, right? And now he's in a place of pure darkness. Now it says fiery gulf, but next line in a little bit later in that section, it describes this landscape as darkness visible. I don't know exactly what that means because darkness is not visible, but... Part of what that means is the landscape that Milton gives us in hell 
is a landscape that is psychological. It's not that you can physically actually see the things he's talking about. It's that the things he's talking about are psychological realities of what it means to be alienated from communion with God. And so he's in this place, and it is a vast place. It's this empty, it's this exiled place. It's the place you often would think of in ancient mythology when when you think of Hades or the River Styx or these kinds of burning sulfur kind of lake places, right? It has all that imagery, but for Milton, in the language of darkness visible, this is about a psychology. This is about what it is to be severed from communion with God. What is the experience of a being who dwelt in ethereal light, worshiping the true and living God, suddenly thrown from that place into a place of utter ignorance Darkness is always ignorance. Blindness is always ignorance. All this kind of pain and torment and all these things of his remove and his exile. So it's a psychological landscape as much as it's an actual landscape of darkness visible. But because of that, what Milton ends up focusing in on, the speaker, Milton's speaker ends up focusing in on, is the satanic mind right? The mind ended up being the most important thing about this. The lines where Satan is trying to kind of collect himself, trying to figure out what has happened, rebounds again and again to how he perceives, how he sees things, from how he thinks about things. You know, the scripture talks about um, the person who is being uh, redeemed is experiencing the renewal of their mind. A fallen mind is a tortured place. A fallen mind is a place that views the things of God and views them as tyranny and hateful and unjust. The fallen mind can be a trap that no one can escape. And oftentimes in this section in book one, you get this perspective of Satan looking at everything, and he is looking at it through this very distinct filter that everything is about Satan, right? The satanic mind is the mind of pure egoism. Why is that? Because he believed himself to be equal with God. That's why he would even stage a rebellion, right? You don't stage a rebellion if you think you're, there's no way you can win. So he believes he is God's equal, and that's, how he, that's why he stages this rebellion or this war in heaven. He believes he is God's equal, and in fact, Milton cues this up all over book one, where he'll talk about, in equal ruin we are joined here, into what pit thou seest, he with his thunder, till then who knew the force of those dire arms. In other words, he's saying, we were his equal, he just had bigger guns right? He, he, it's like he cheated, right? Like he, he didn't, we didn't know he had that, that missile, you know, we didn't know he had some of that power, you know, we, we didn't know he was so well armed, you know, it's just like he had, he just had greater weapons, but Satan believes himself still to be equal with God, right? This is the heart, the birth of sin is from pride, right? Is from pride that misperceives, that thinks of God as a creature in the world, God as a giant angel, God as whatever I am, but projected in a larger way. This is what people do all the time. I think of God as a large person with a large person's mind and a large person's personality. And so when we don't understand him, we say he's unfair. And so when we think it's harsh, we think of ourselves being like that, and we think that that's, that's what tyrants do. 
and when he does this, he does that. We're always thinking of him in our terms as a reflection of ourselves, right? And Milton knows that's what the gods of Greece and Rome were. The gods of Greece and Rome were just giant psychological projections of human beings, and they were fickle, and they toyed with people, and they absolutely did all of that kind of capricious, unfair kind of godlike stuff. They were oftentimes fighting each other over people and their fates, right? And so Milton shows that the satanic mind sees God as though he was Zeus. The satanic mind sees God, who in the Christian tradition understands God to be the ground of all reality. God in the Christian understanding is not a person or a being in the world. God is the being that makes all being possible in and of and as the world. Now that might sound like a bunch of metaphysical mumbo jumbo, and in part it is because it's hard to grasp those concepts, but it's really, really important for Christians to realize that God is not a being in the world. He's not the tooth fairy, he's not Santa Claus, and he's not Zeus, the satanic mind makes God a being in the world and looks at God through someone's own lens and projects upon God themselves. That's what the satanic mind does, right? Until then, who knew the force of those arms? The cheat. How could he cheat us like this, right? I was his equal in every way. Satan believes in book one, proffers this again and again, vaunts himself and says, the only reason we fell was because God cheated, right? We were his equal, but we didn't know he was going to cheat. Now, as I said, the satanic mind is everything. And you get this in most, one of the most important lines in book one, which is 97. And he's talking about the potent victor in his rage can also inflict. He goes, nor do I repent or change. The satanic mind refuses to repent or change. Repent means to change, right? To turn around, to say, I did something wrong. Nor do I repent or change, though changed in outward luster. So he, he's lost his beauty. He's lost his divine light, right? He's lost that communion with God that gave him that, that glowing kind of aspect of him as a worshiping angel. Though I am changed, he says, in outward luster, I repent not. I change not. And then there's this enjambment that says, that fixed mind, that fixed mind, the satanic mind is fixed, you know, one of the scariest things that can happen to human beings, <laughs> sorry, I am irrepressibly a preacher. One of the scariest things that can happen to human beings is that they do not change their mind. There was an old joke about one of our former presidents that said he is firm in his convictions. He believes things on Tuesday no matter what he learned on Monday. The idea that one of the scariest things for people in power is that their minds are fixed, that they're unable to change, that they're unable to learn. I was listening to a guy who had spent 10 years as a part of a very well-known institute um, arguing against uh, climate change as a fiction of sort of crazy liberal people or whatever. And then after a while, 10 years, he started to realize that he was not able to change, not willing to change, that his mind was so fixed he was not able to actually hear some of the better evidence or arguments. And it's not that he fully swung over to some other side and is like screaming about the sky falling, but he said in this interview to the person interviewing him, do you have any idea how hard it is to change your mind? Do you have any idea how hard it is to be a deeply important connected person in a political party? and to change your mind from the party's mind. 
And it was just an incredible thing about a grown person talking about how rare and how almost impossible and how strange it can feel to change your mind. To change your mind is to almost feel like you don't control the world. P.S. You don't control the world. But Satan and the satanic mind can't feel that, must feel that it can control the world. And so the satanic mind is uneducable. It cannot learn it cannot humble itself and say, I didn't understand that. I got that wrong. Instead, with pride, he says, that he has this fixed mind. And then in lines that maybe some of you would recognize, he explains a little bit later in book one, around about lines 250 plus, what that looks like. He says he is one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. For the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. The mind is its own place. I don't know if you've ever suffered from anxiety attacks, but if you have, you know the mind is its own place. I had a good friend who was experiencing a pretty profound anxiety attack right in front of me, and it was new to me. This is many years ago, and I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know why he was experiencing that. And I remember I started to just talk to him out of it and just say, hey, man, what are you doing? Like, it's it's fine. Everything's fine. Like, let's just, let's go, let's play video games. Like, let's just, and he had to, like, while he's having this panic attack, he had to try to explain to me that it wasn't a rational thing that was happening to him and he couldn't be talked out of it. That it wasn't like he had, like, oh, I had reasoned my way into this thing. And so I was like, hey, you know, whatever you're imagining isn't true or whatever, you're, you know, I was just like telling him, like, eh, it's fake. Don't worry. It's, it's, it's not real. Like, snap out of it, you know. And, and this is years before I suffered my own panic attack at a certain point in time and had the weirdest feeling of my life. Um, but this idea that the mind is its own place is a terrifying reality for people who struggle with certain kinds of things. And, 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 and even people who don't struggle with sort of the categorical uh, mental illnesses or whatever, everybody knows, man, your mind can screw you up so bad, you can start thinking things that people think about you that they don't think about you, and it could destroy a relationship in a day or an hour. I mean, it's incredible how powerful and how unbelievably weak the power of the mind is. But Satan is proud that the mind is its own place. And he says he refuses to change that mind. He, he has a fixed mind, it's set. The satanic mind is its own place. And what does he say? Can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. There's a moment a little bit later in this book where the demons are discussing what they should do next. And, and there's an argument that says, well, what if the creator lets us back in? And Satan says, if the creator repents or changes his mind about throwing us out and lets us back in, do you know what would happen? We would be forced to worship him. And he has this language about how they would be like, like birds being crushed to, to sing. And he talks about them having to emit warbling hymns. In other words, what he's saying was, even if God changed his mind and let the rebel angels back into heaven, it would be hell for them because their minds cannot refuse to change. If the mind cannot change, then the satanic mind in heaven is in hell. 
And, and so he describes returning to heaven. He imagines what it would be like to return to heaven, but with a fixed mind. And in that case, he describes it as the language of slavery, as the language of torture, as the language of abuse, being forced to worship. Now, let me remind you, scripturally, Lucifer is like the chief worshiper of God, right? And worship in heaven is based on reality. It's not based on someone demanding something that is unnecessary or capricious. Worship in reality is based on the fact that God is worthy of worship, that, that it's like describing a sunset as beautiful because it actually is beautiful, not because of, oh, I just think it, I feel like it's beautiful. No, 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 it is beautiful, right? There's this like objective reality to certain experiences of beauty and wonder, even in the human sphere. Worship is an objective response to God's perfection, to God's glory. And yet Satan, with an unrepentant or a fixed mind, imagines himself in heaven, worshiping, and it's in slavery, being crushed like a bird, being squeezed between two giant hands, warbling out hymns. He cannot praise God because he does not believe God is worthy of praise. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a hell of heaven a heaven of hell. So that psychology which is what we would also call sort of pure narcissism, pure egoism. Milton gives that even more graphic metaphoric description later on when he describes how Satan fell. And he describes him being in heaven, and he describes him having the thought in his mind. Remember, everything begins in this mind. He has the thought in his mind that he is equal to God. And it says at that moment, out of his head is birthed this woman, this child, called sin. And it is, it is a, you know, it's, it's Milton taking a spin off of Zeus, and out of Zeus's brain supposedly was birthed Athena, right? Directly out of his mind, right? Out of his brain, off the side of his head. And Satan, when he has, when he conjures in heaven the thought that he is equal to God and that perhaps God is unfair, it literally gives birth to sin, right? This is a scriptural... Uh, description as well. Um, and then later on, what happens is Satan meets sin as this woman who is beautiful from the waist up and hideous and being rent by dogs from the entrails down. It's like a very Dantean, disgusting picture. And he describes, this is a little graphic, so if you had kids in the car, you know, maybe just mute this for a second or <laughs> take a pause. Um, he describes Satan encountering this woman who is constantly having these dogs tear out her entrails again and again and again, but she never dies. And then he encounters this hideous like creature that rushes at him at this one moment in this encounter, and he finds out it's his son, Death, who was birthed from his incestuous intercourse with his daughter, Sin. 
And so what happens is it describes that once Satan has this thought that gives birth to sin, he has private intercourse. In other words, what he's saying and what Milton's saying is, is sin is nurtured in the privacy of the mind in this intimate, deep, dark space of human being kind of having this intercourse with sinful thoughts, with sinful desires, right? And then it gives birth itself. It's all perverse. It's all disgusting. It gives birth itself to death. I mean, that's almost an exact quote from Scripture, right? So when, when fully formed, sin gives birth to death. And so what Milton does in poetic language is he, 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 he makes that real. <laughs> and it is one of the most disturbing things you could read. It is one of the most perverse and disgusting moments in English literature. And it is, it is I mean, it's, it's fouler than foul. And, and this, in part, is Milton's point. Sin appears at first, or in certain ways, beautiful, intoxicating, sensual, aesthetically pleasing, alluring, all the things that will appear, by the way, later on to Eve. And yet, when it's entertained, when it's communed with, when it is brought into the mind and the heart and the soul, it becomes this deep, perverse, vile corruption that does not stay hidden or private, but gives birth to death, right? Birth is always an image of how one's thoughts or actions have consequence in, in the real world, right? Um, think of our struggles over what to do with the unborn, right? We don't want our actions to have consequences in the real world. We want our intimacies to be discreet, private, fully under our control, and babies keep getting in the way because they show us that we are not fully in control, that our actions do have consequences, that we are not able to just magically be autonomous beings. But the satanic mind is the fiction of being autonomous, I am not from God. I do not depend on God for my existence. I create myself. That is the satanic mind, the fixed mind, the mind in itself which is its own place, the heaven of hell, the hell of heaven. It ultimately is autonomy that is the great sin. Sin itself is the belief that you do not depend at every moment for your existence on God, that you do not owe that God the worship due his name. Sin is the fiction of autonomy that our own culture is struggling with. But Milton would look at that culture and say, that is the satanic mind you are wrestling with. And it's not those people over there. It's every single one of us. Because maybe in your heart, you have sort of the abortion thing settled. I guarantee you don't have everything settled. I guarantee there are other things that you nurture privately that are your own sinful struggles and that your own fixed mind wars against the spirit with. And Milton would say, you just need to see that that is the satanic, that there isn't something that is sort of harmless or even interesting or just sort of edgy and worldly about that. But that is at the heart of, at the heart of what it means to be severed from the reality of God. On that light note, on that bright note, producer Zach, um, we're going to put the bookmark in. We're still just literally in books one and two, but talking about Satan and the satanic mind. Thank you. I'm sorry if that was creepy. I hope it wasn't boring, but we are going to pick this up uh, right around where we left it, and we're going to look then at what happens when God creates Adam and Eve. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. 
If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe, and your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed.